And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection of faith and reason. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here, reminding you how important your email questions are to this program, Spitzer's Universe at EWTN.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, Magis Center, Credible Catholic, also Purposeful Universe as well. And be sure to check out EWTN's on-demand page each week, not only for and our YouTube channel, not just for uh, Father Spitzer's Universe, which is great, but many, many of the other programs we have. We have more programs, more hours of programming available to you 24-7 than any other Catholic entity. Our topic today, how does possession take place from Father's Book, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives as we're wrapping up that chapter. It's naturally available through our catalog as are most of his uh, videos and DVDs. The Book of the Month from EW10 Publishing, Spiritual Excellence, The Path to Happiness, Holiness, and Heaven by Deacon Richard Eason. Check that out. And right now we are going to welcome Father Spitzer once again. Great to see you. And if you'll kick things off with a prayer, that'd be great, Father. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the many blessings you give us the blessing especially of this ministry, our ability to serve in it. Please send your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. amen. Mary, seat of wisdom, pray amen. for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Okay, very good. Hope you are doing well. Here's a couple of uh, recent articles I wanted to bring up to you and see your thoughts on. You sure. know, there was some issues uh, with uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI that came out out of Munich. Some concerns about uh, things back, I was in 1980, uh, having to do with uh, some abuse cases. And there was a, an in interview that was recently done by our Rome bureau chief with Archbishop Gonschwein, who you know is really basically mm -hmm. uh, Benedict's right-hand mm -hmm. man all these years. Yeah. And, I, and a couple of comments I was interested in your thoughts on. One he said uh, in response to a question, one thing is clear, certain goals that the Synodal Way is aiming at are something for which the person and the work of Benedict stand in the way. Okay, interesting. He also said, mm -hmm. for the process of the world synod, I'm convinced that they will not be fruitful if I want a different church that is no longer based on revelation, so to speak, if I want a different structure of the church that's no longer sacramental but pseudo-democratic, then I must also see that this has nothing to do with the Catholic understanding, with Catholic ecclesiology, and the Catholic understanding of the church. And of course, he's referring not so much to the overall efforts of the Holy Father, but what's going on in Germany uh, and, and some yeah. of the politics mm -hmm. that are there. And he also goes on mm -hmm. to say that... Um, they talk about his, Benedict's letter, last letter was kind of a farewell letter. He said, I am convinced, this is Gonschwein, that once these storms have passed and some of the things he was accused of simply rot off, to put it cr crudely, one will see the clarity of his thought, the clarity of his work, the things he did shine brightly and are a great treasure for the church, for those who believe, for the faithful, and a treasure which can bear many fruits. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, first of all, uh, with respect to Pope Benedict, he was in the same difficult situation as everybody else in the church. Uh, no one knew 
uh, you know, how intransigent, um, you know, sexual abuse uh, propensities were. I mean, it was, you know, in the 1980s, uh, you can see how, uh, you know, I, we had people who advised us, you know, mm -hmm. well, if you know a person who has this uh, particular problem, this is a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, what we recommend you do is send them to this center, uh, you know, the psychiatric center, that, where they can be cured or where they can deal with it. Mm -hmm. Now, this is in the 80s. So, I mean, this was still thought to be something curable and things of that nature. There was a, a real flux as to the seriousness of the problem. The statistics were mm -hmm. certainly not evident back in the 80s mm -hmm. uh, about what was going on. And people, you know, you, you know, sometimes you get accusations and it, you, most of the time, of course you want to give the priority to the victim. Of course you want to make sure uh, that the victim is heard, is believed, but you also have to check on things. Mm. You, you, you can't simply, uh, you know, um, go out and, and, uh, and of course, uh, take a punitive action against a priest and then find out that it was a false accusation in the aftermath. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that most accusations are false, not by any means. Most of them are, are very true. Mm -hmm. But you, you just do have to be very careful because other people, you know, there's a, uh, you know, uh, you want to adjudicate in a fair and just way. So the, 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 uh, the key, you know, principle, you know, I can see poor um, Pope Benedict looking at this. He's not heard a lot about it. He does not know a lot about it psychiatrically. A lot of psychiatric opinion. Mm -hmm. was wrong on the subject, thought this was basically curable, things of that nature. And on top of it, of course, um, you've got this difficulty of I want to be fair, I want to adjudicate this thing, I don't want to falsely accuse somebody, ruin their lives, you know, mm -hmm. perpetrate a punitive action that, that uh, is not warranted. So all of these things were kind of set in place. We did not have the procedures. We did not have the protocols. So you can see that, you know, there were openings uh, so that people might have not done the diligent and good and responsible thing that we would do today, mm -hmm. almost by second nature, because it's just built into the system. We just didn't have that system uh, back in the 80s. So I'm not saying, you know, that, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, Pope Benedict somehow uh, doesn't have some, um, you know, uh, uh, reconciliation that he might want to do with some of these uh, people uh, who were victims at the time. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm certainly saying in the same breath mm -hmm. that uh, I cannot hold him to the standard of accountability right. that I would hold a person today who has all these things in place, has the knowledge in place, has the standards in place, and has the systems in place. Right, right. Uh, he just didn't have any of it. So, uh, and um, so uh, I guess, you know, that's, we just have to be fair and not try and read into history what was not there, what we have right. in our time, but was not right. there at that time. The old revisionist historical method, it generally winds up in being very ruinous. Right. Uh, to people unnecessarily. And the, and the timing of this coming out and coming out of Munich and Germany yeah. at the same time is where I think yeah. uh, there's some sense Very of convenient. the politics that I think uh, Archbishop uh, Georg uh, kind of alluded to in, in what he said there. Mm -hmm. and, and it's also, you know, mm -hmm. like you pointed out, I mean, this is a bad comparison, but, you know, I know in the Civil War, the wonder drug for, for, for taking care of people besides morphine was heroin. They thought, this is yeah. much better. We'll get with this yeah. heroin, it takes away all the pain. 
and they gave it to yeah. people because they thought it was good for them. They had no idea yeah. that they would it would make people addicted, yeah. and it, it became addicted. Yeah. Now, if somebody was taking heroin today, you'd say, well, I hope you yeah. know by now yeah. that it's very addictive, yeah. and if you <laughs> exactly. don't, you should, yeah. but uh, yeah. to go back and yeah. necessarily look at somebody in the past, and this is a different oh, analogy, yeah. and say, well, those doctors, why would they ever give people heroin? Well, because at the yeah. time, that's what they thought worked. Yeah, and it's the same thing with the Galileo affair, mm -hmm. you know. We forget that, you know, um, things that seem to be completely divorced from religion today, for example, you know, the running of, you know, scientific, um, you know, tests and things like that, of course, they take their own independent method to their own independent conclusions, right, through their own independent data. And that's very different from, you know, the methodology of theology, of religion, of, of the sacred um, uh, truths that are necessary for salvation that are done in the church. Now, of course, back then, I mean, you know, the idea of separating completely uh, secular uh, knowledge from uh, sacred knowledge in, in some methodological way, it just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, you make a statement about the, about the, the earth, uh, uh, circling the sun versus the sun circling the earth, this had, you know, earth-shattering significance in ways that just just didn't happen, uh, mm -hmm. just don't happen, excuse me, today. So, I mean, um, uh, we, we have to sort of be very careful about historical revisionism. We have to look at the times mm -hmm. um, that, uh, you know, in which certain statements were uttered and things of that nature. But nevertheless, I mean, um, St. Robert Bellarmine it did come out and in his uh, letter to Foscarini, and he, he said, look, he says, uh, uh, I have yet to be convinced with the proof that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the earth is rotating around uh, the sun. However, if an indisputable scientific test is uh, presented to me, I will then have to say that we must believe in that indisputable scientific test and that we must interpret the scriptures in light of that evidence, in light of these facts. So he was very clear on what had to be done, but at the same time he said, but Galileo doesn't have the proof. There is no stellar parallax. So he had his, uh, in fact, I'm absolutely convinced that if Robert Bellarmine had lived, you know, another 15 years longer uh, into the Galileo trial, mm -hmm. um, you know, into the end of the aftermath, I'm convinced we wouldn't have the problems, um, you know, that, that, that kind of showed up on the, on the, on the whole, uh, you know, trial um, that, that we, we did have, you know, in terms of um, Galileo. Um, not being able to to really plead, uh, you know, his um, um, uh, ignorance of, of certain facts uh, in a in a way that would have been treated mercifully. So all these things are there present, but again, reading today's views into yesterday's thinking uh, is a real stretch because oh. cultural things change, cultural categories change, um, the whole view of the, the relationship between the, the, the state and the, and the church uh, changes. Uh, you know, the idea of the intersection of faith and reason. We now have a whole set of developed methodologies. Uh, we're not kind of operating in the dark to, to mm -hmm. deal with these things. So all that's there today, but again, you just can't read it all into the past. Well, that's where we get that cancel you know, culture, you know, going back to what somebody yeah. said 35 years ago in yeah. another environment, in another situation, taken out of context uh, oh, yeah. in a world where that maybe 
way of talking wasn't at that point seen as negatively as now we've learned that it, that appropriately so, that it was inappropriate. Uh, and kind of, like yeah. you said, judging the past by the present, or even in some cases by the, by the future. Uh, here's another mm -hmm. uh, article, the Catholic thing. Uh, a physicist believes in miracles. Robert J. Kurland, uh, yeah. I think you know him, so is that how you pronounce his yeah, name? Yeah, I do, yeah, very so good, I, yeah, good friend, yeah. yeah mm -hmm. It says here, he said, the most difficult thing, he was a convert, was that of the Eucharist, mm -hmm. the change from bread and wine to the body and blood of our Lord. He said, a wise old priest who was instructing me at the time said, if you can believe in one miraculous event, the resurrection, why not the others? And I thought that was kind of interesting. He also goes on to say, here's what's important. Science is neither purely theory, theory nor purely a collection of facts. He goes on to say, mm -hmm. the truths of science are not eternal, but temporal, unlike the truths of the Catholic faith. Even more importantly, here's another set of questions to put to the advocates of scientism. What can science tell you about ethics, beauty, what is good, and what is true? And he goes on yeah. to say, yeah. science mm -hmm. may answer how, but never answer why. Yeah. All of those things are true statements, and that is the problem with scientism right at the heart of it. Uh, Bob's, you know, was a former professor there at Harvard as well, and and uh, has uh, truly uh, tremendous degrees in physical chemistry. A very good uh, man, and he is right on the marker. I mean, uh, yeah, truth um, itself beyond the, the empirical observational world. Science has nothing to say about it because every single point of scientific evidence has to be grounded in observational data. How are you going to talk about God who is beyond the universe and therefore beyond our observational uh, uh, data? I mean, you, you, you can't even, you know, science has no business giving us doctrines about God. It can't do it by its own methodology. And, you know, the idea of science disproving God is, is hilarious because, of course, how are you going to use observational data that comes from, that has to come from within our universe to disprove a a God who lies outside of our universe, beyond our universe. I mean, it's, you know, again, it's one of these incongruities. Yeah, and, and how is science, which is based on, you know, empirical and, and mathematical, uh, you know, measurement, et cetera, how are you going to talk about beauty? How are you going to talk about love? How are you going to talk about morality? They are trans-scientific categoriality. I mean, there's just, there's, scientific categories don't accommodate the moral, the ought, the beautiful. That's the aesthetic, right? Love, the empathetic, right? They, they don't, it's just simply out of the question. I mean, let the poets uh, deal with what their area is. Let the, you know, religion and the sacred deal with their area. Let, of course, um, the artists and, and, uh, and the, uh, uh, you know, the musicians deal with their area. Uh, these are all proper, but science, science can't be the custodian of them all, as scientism would have it be. And so, of course, it's a it's a tremendous strain to put on science, let alone a complete falsity. So, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, as Bob, you know, Bob mm. is right about uh, everything that he, mm. he has said there, and I think he's a great example, and he's right about the Holy Eucharist. I mean, that, but didn't Blaise Pascal make some uh, observation like that? Um, mm. Some uh, person was challenging him about the real presence in the Eucharist. Blaise Pascal said something pithy like, uh, well, 
uh, I hope I'm right about Pascal, but mm -hmm. I think it was. In any case, the, he says something like, uh, well, you know, if you can believe in the incarnation mm -hmm. of, you know, the Son of God actually coming to be with us on this earth, what's the problem with the Eucharist? Right. I mean, this is child's play compared with the incarnation. So the idea, you know, is, is I think Bob is right on the marker mm -hmm. and, and uh, he's got a wisdom as well as absolutely terrific scientific credentials. Well, I thought that was a good reminder considering uh, over the last year and a half we heard the, how the science was settled and then it was unsettled <laughs> and then it was settled again. So it's always good to <laughs> probably to keep that in mind, right? So right. let's get to some letters uh, right away because we got a whole bunch here we want to try and okay. catch up. Dear Father Spitzer, I keep hearing that the Catholic Church has the fullness of truth. What exactly does this mean? And this is from Jesse. Okay, Jesse, um, what it means is it, this is the fullness of truth about revelation. What does that mean? So God is going to reveal himself to us. And that revelation, right, God's self-revelation, most especially through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? He is God with us. He is the, 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 the highest point, the zenith of God's self-revelation. And so the, tr the church is the interpreter, the definitive interpreter of that self-revelation revelation of God somewhat through the Old Testament and especially through the New Testament through Jesus Christ right we can the church has those sacred truths which are necessary for salvation intrinsic to the teaching of the Old Covenant and of course intrinsic to the teaching of Jesus Christ the New Covenant and the church has been given this power to be the definitive interpreter of those sacred truths. Not scientific truths, not aesthetic truths, not musical truths, right? Not mathematical truths. So if the Pope wants to say, you know, uh, that pi is not 3.14159, blah, 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 but rather pi is, should be 3.1, as the Indiana legislature once did. Um, <laughs> of course, that'd be outside of the domain of the church's truth, which is sacred truth necessary for salvation uh, given to us uh, through the Old Testament, through Jesus Christ, and the church's power of the Holy Spirit to interpret that uh, um, truth according to Jesus, right? Uh, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the jaws of the netherworld will never, gates of the netherworld will never prevail against it. I, whatsoever you declare loosed on earth, will, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, excuse me. Whatsoever you declare yeah. loose on earth, will be loose in heaven. Whatsoever you declare bound on earth, shall be bound in heaven. So the idea is yes, the church has been given the power. The Holy Spirit is the instrument of that power. The Pope and the bishops in concert and ecumenical council and the Pope himself, ex Cathedra, has the power to make definitive interpretations of Jesus' words and any sacred doctrine. And that is the fullness of truth over which she has custody. Was it an apple pie? I mean, what kind of pie were they talking about? <laughs> makes you wonder. Exactly. All I know is this. If they changed that, I don't think I'd trust anything they were designing or building or anything. Yeah. I think you might find yeah, out. Yeah, might be a tough, tough go traveling over there. that bridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. Maybe that's why they're all falling down. Okay, dear yeah. Father Spitzer, uh, my husband recently died, and while going through the house to downsize, I came across 
several questionable books, hopefully they aren't your books, that I think are porn and, we'll, and we will throw them away. I'm disappointed to find out this about my husband and it's negatively coloring my attitude towards him. What should I do, anonymous? And of course they're not your books. Uh, so yeah, mm. what about something like uh, that? You've got a situation where post facto you learn something about somebody mm -hmm. and you're disappointed. Well, I mean, two things to remember. Uh, the first thing to remember is um, why did he have those books? Mm. Was he himself using them? Were they confiscated from somebody else? Or, you know, what are the circumstances through which this came about? We just simply don't know. The second thing is remember the church's definition of mortal sin, right? You know, a person you know, has to have sufficient reflection and full consent of the will. So did he have it? Was he trying to commit, uh, you know, was he actually committing mortal sins, excuse me, or was he in fact in some, you know, other mode where he had all these impediments to the free use of his will? We don't know. I'm getting to a point here. There's so many we don't knows about this thing right. that the advice of St. Ignatius of Loyola is always appropriate. Always give the better interpretation that you can. Now you say, well, they're porn books. How can I give the better interpretation to that? My point is we just don't know his degree of culpability. We just don't know why he had them. Uh, I mean, if he was a do good and decent man right, right. Uh, and he was going to the sacraments and things are going on, just that w would lead you to believe that he was a good man uh, through his prayer life and his sacraments. Uh, just believe that and don't, don't you know, reconstruct uh, everything about the person uh, based on these things. Uh, wait until you get to heaven right. and you have the facts. And I'll bet you anything, by the time you get to heaven and have the facts, the Lord will have purified him anyway right. and brought him into the fullness of light. Well, if he's so, in um, purgatory or made it to heaven, he, he's already sorry yeah. for whatever he did that was incorrect. He is right? absolutely and he certainly sorry. Would want you to forgive him, right? Yeah, absolutely. And right. by the way, he could have been very sorry too uh, while he was alive that he had those things and was, you know, um, Right. Uh, maybe uh, hooked on that. them, right. Right. struggling with them. Mm -hmm. Right, absolutely. Here's another question, dear Father Spitzer. Paul was not an apostle and never met Jesus while he was here on earth. Well, you can argue about that part. Well, that... Why, <laughs> right. Why then yeah. does the church treat Paul's writings with such reverence as if they are equal to the Gospels? Aren't they just Paul's interpretation of Christ's words and ministry? however learned and carefully reasoned and shouldn't we be free to disagree with them and form our own views on the subjects he discourses on and this is Brad. Uh, Brad actually you know as you know from the letter to the Galatians and uh, the multiple references in the Acts of the Apostles uh, St. Paul did meet Jesus mm -hmm. and he not only had a little confrontational question with him uh, he said you know Paul why are you persecuting me he said, who are you, sir? And he said, I am Jesus, and you are persecuting me. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, did uh, 
Did St. Paul get uh, the word uh, from the apostles of Jesus to fill in uh, some of the blanks? But first of all, the encounter with Jesus. What do I think happened? I think it was a complete transformation of his being, and Paul even says that it was. Mm -hmm. So this encounter with Jesus, an encounter admittedly not with the um, uh, Jesus, uh, the, the pre-resurrection Jesus, but the encounter with the glorious Jesus, um, the, 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 the Jesus who of course shone like the glory of God and because of that, uh, you know, Paul uh, finds himself in a state of blindness. Uh, all of these things that happen is certainly a significant interior transformation and encounter. The second thing is he receives the Holy Spirit. He receives his catechesis directly from some of the apostles. All of these things privilege Paul to be an apostle in the same way as the others. Now, if you look at Paul's letters, the very question you're asking me was the question that got brought up to Paul all of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, people would say, hey, you're not one of the people who was really in the presence of Jesus. And Paul would say, no, I wasn't. I received uh, you know, my uh, awareness of Jesus out of due course. I, you know, uh, received the appearance of Jesus in his glorious form and received my catechesis from the apostles. I, I uh, would that I could have done the, op the other, but I, I did not. However, the Holy Spirit is in me. And I, through the Holy Spirit that has been given to me uh, through the apostolic preaching, right, that has been given to me, I can tell you this right now. If you don't think that I'm preaching the truth, then when I came to visit you guys, did you perform miracles before I came? No. But now that I'm here, you're now performing miracles. And by the way, when I came into your midst, did I not do these things that showed that I had power in the name of Jesus? Yes. But did anybody do that with you before I came? No. So, of course, he goes through all of these things and he says, you know, if the Spirit is not in me, if the name of Jesus, then how could the name of Jesus be so efficacious in your midst? And if I am preaching him risen from the dead, do you think for one minute that God is going to give me efficacious power in the name of Jesus through his Holy Spirit? If I'm lying about the resurrection, if I'm saying things that are theologically wrong, do you think he's going to actually give me this kind of of charismatic power? Do you think he's going to give me the acceptance into the apostolic church that I'm being given when I went up to the council of Jerusalem, when I told Peter, quote, to his face, this and that and the other thing? You get the point. Of course, what he's trying to say is, look for yourself at what God thinks I am. Mm -hmm. And God thinks I am one of the apostles, not only because he gave, uh, Jesus gave me his own risen appearance, but because he gave me his Holy Spirit and he has given me the charism of leadership and he is working his miraculous powers in the name of Jesus through me that was never there before. If he just put it all the clues together, God has given me approbation as an apostle, even though I was not one of the twelve. 
Also, uh, as we, his name got changed, right? I mean, uh, effectively, absolutely, too, which is usually indicative of of, a, uh, of another change, an internal change, right? That's At least correct. the scripture it seems to have been. Mm -hmm. Okay, very yeah, good. Yeah, the idea of a name change only a parent would have that kind of power, or somebody with more power than um, than a parent. Right. And who's got more power than a parent in Paul's life? Jesus. Right. I mean, the name Paul is somehow related uh, to Jesus' appearance to him, right. just as it was with Peter. When Jesus changes Peter's name, only a person of Jesus' stature could have done something like that. Simon, you are now rock. You're now Peter. Mm -hmm. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. Okay, very good. Let's try to squeeze another question in before we take sure. a break. Dear Father Spitzer, uh, I was asked by one of my high school catechism students, uh, I could not answer this question. Does the church teach that formerly declared saints died and went straight to heaven? Or would it be possible for someone to die, enter purgatory, and then by the time their cause for sainthood advances to have entered heaven? Dave. Dave, I think what the church is saying is they went straight to heaven. Mm -hmm. And if there were any doubt, if you were going to purgatory in the meantime, I don't think the church would have ever declared them to be a saint. I think, frankly, uh, the, the idea of sainthood is you die and you meet your maker, you meet the Lord, and he brings you right in to the kingdom of heaven as good and faithful servant. But that's not to say, obviously, that you're not a saint when you ultimately get to heaven, even if you spent uh, all eternity oh, yeah. in purgatory, uh, Absolutely, right? Yeah, right, that's right. right. I think so, what he's talking about are canonized right, name. saints. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So we just wanted yeah. to make sure everybody got yeah. that. Okay, very good. Thank you, Father Spitzer. Stay with us. We're much more ahead with Father Spitzer and more of your questions right after this quick break. Stay with us. you staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe, How Does Possession Take Place from Father's Wonderful Book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives. Still finishing off some of your questions you sent in to us uh, via our email, which we're always promoting you send them in so we can answer them. Here's a question to you. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer, I have a friend who fell into Arianism and believes Jesus never claimed to be equal to God, though Jesus may be a quote-unquote little God. Before Abraham was, I am, and Thomas's outburst, my Lord and my God, have no effect on his poor beliefs. What do I say, Robert? Well, Robert, I, um, you know, part of this is your friend's problem, and maybe there's nothing you can say, but you got to try. So the first thing um, I would try to do is ask him, um, uh, you know, what the meaning of this Q logion is. It's both in Luke and in Matthew. When Jesus looks up to heaven, he says, I give you praise, Heavenly Father, for what you have revealed to the merest of children you have hidden from the learned and the clever. Father, you have graciously willed it so. And you have given over everything to me. And no one knows the Father except the Son, 
and no one knows the son I'm sorry no one knows the son except the father right. and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wishes to reveal him mm -hmm. now if you can interpret that I mean that is basically right out of an ancient document the Q document which is the basis um, the Aramaic basis essentially for Matthew and Luke mm -hmm. so it goes all the way back to to Jesus it's got a uh, three different um, you know Abba references in it uh, that are very indicative of coming right out of the mouth of Jesus so ask your friend uh, Robert um, just how do you interpret this no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wishes to reveal him so um, what does the word know mean in Semitic culture? Mm -hmm. And just ask your friend, don't interpret this as a Greek. Jesus was Jewish. What does it mean? It means to have intimate communion with that other. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. It doesn't mean an abstraction in your mind. Perfectly valid for philosophy class. Terrible for exegesis class. Now, once you get to that idea of intimate communion, with the Father and the idea of sonship and Father, Jesus calling himself the Son, the one Son. Mm -hmm. Now, if, and, and of course, what is he saying in that reciprocal statement? He is saying that the, the Son knows the Father as the Father knows the Son. Mm -hmm. He's putting himself on an equal level with God the Father. So little God, I don't think so. Right. Now the second thing just you know for uh, uh, you know our sake here is that uh, Jesus makes all kinds of other uh, proclamations right mm -hmm. when he's uh, you know in the, uh, sitting there turning over the tables in the temple etc. He talks about being the cornerstone of the church. And what's the parable that he uses to illustrate all of that? It's the parable of the, the tenant farmer who goes out and of course he's got this property, he wants to get his share of the vineyard and what does he do? He sends in a bunch of people and those guys get kicked out. Then he sends in another bunch of people, they kill all of those people. And then finally he sends his ha agapetas, his ha huias, ha his son, his only son, uh, his uh, his uh, agapetas, his beloved one. Mm -hmm. He sends them this one with the ha, the, right, the exclusive, right, the beloved one, right. So the idea is uh, he sends them, and of course they kill him too. Now, what do you think Jesus could mean by referring uh, to himself in that way? Mm -hmm. So the idea is these, again, are definite ipsissima vox Jesu. In other words, they are the, the truly the, um, the, the, tr the true words of Jesus. And there's very good mm -hmm. historical exegetical criticism to back it up that this came out of the mouth of Jesus. Now, if Jesus is making these claims with the only begotten one or the only uh, beloved one, or he's making claims about knowing the Father as the Father knows him, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. I mean, this Arianism is just cheap 
n philosophical nonsense. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, you know, it's not warranted by the scriptures. It's not warranted by uh, the resurrection of Jesus. It is certainly not warranted by the fact that the, the, Jesus is the one who gives us the Holy Spirit definitively. What's the Holy Spirit in the early church? The dunamis tu theu, right? The, the power of God himself. Mm -hmm. So you, 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 who can give away the power of God himself? But God, okay, that's, that's the whole idea. The whole idea of Jesus having the power over life and death. What do you think this signifies to a Jewish person? Signifies that you've got the power of God within him. And by the way, it's rather interesting that Jesus does all of his healing miracles, all of the miracles raising from the dead, and all the exorcisms in his own name. He's doing it uh, on his own. He touches that beer, that boy who's on the beer coming out of the um, town of Nain by the gates. And of course, uh, that's all he has to say, do is touch that boy and say, rise. And the next thing, of course, he goes into Jairus' daughter's, um, you know, uh, uh, death room. And he says, Talitha Ka'um, you know, little girl, arise, and boom, uh, up she comes, etc. He's doing it in his own name. He's not making a plea. The, uh, the, literally, the power of God exists within him. Now you've got to put all the clues together. Mm -hmm. What does Jesus mean by, I'm bringing the kingdom of God in my own person, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It's right in front of you, uh, you guys. Well, what's the, where's the kingdom of God? <laughs> it's me. Hello. Is everybody here? So, okay, let's put the clues together. Kingdom of God is coming by Jesus personally. Number two, he has the power to, to uh, exercise uh, Satan all by himself, no appeal to God. All of his healing powers, he has the power over life and death. He can raise uh, the dead back to life again by his own authority, by his own power. And then we now hear him saying that he, the, he knows the Father as the Father knows him. We, you know, in other words, he's, he's got this reciprocal uh, power of intimate communion in himself with the Father. And then finally, of course, you know, he's the one, the only begotten one that Jesus proclaims himself to be, the only beloved one. So you look at all of these things, you put all the clues together, you see this all in the light of the power of the resurrection. Then what are the disciples doing? They're going around in the, in the early church, all around the Acts of the, you know, in, in, in all the various um, uh, cities in Greece and all around Jerusalem. And what are they doing? They're saying, Jesus Christ is ha kurias. He is the Lord. And they're going around telling people, he is is the Son of God, right? So that's a later term that comes after Hakurias. By the way, the Lord. What does the Lord mean? It is the Greek Septuagint translation of what word? Yahweh, that's right, the divine name. Hello, you know, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. I mean, the church is going around preaching this thing, using mm -hmm. the divine name of Jesus. Now, let me tell you something. If God thought that this was in error, I suppose that Jesus really wasn't the Son of God. He really wasn't yeah, the, the Lord. He really couldn't, uh, be, the, the divine name couldn't be used uh, of him. Let me tell you, uh, for all intents and purposes, God would not be working miracles in the name of Jesus all over the place through all these apostles and disciples. This wouldn't be happening if there if the apostolic preaching about Jesus' divinity was mm -hmm. false. And look at that Roman's charisma. That's the killer. He is also, you know, he's, through David, he is the son of man. 
but he is also the Son of God through the resurrection. So you, you know, everything is pointed. By the way, a kerygma, that's a very early proclamation of the church, pre-gospel proclamation. You put all these pieces together, and I can tell you, Jesus is no little God. Jesus is a big G God. Now, um, I think the best thing to do with your friend, Robert, would be to record that um, stuff and then just play it wow. for him, and then he can get a quick dose of the rationale uh, for well, this. But it's a big mistake exegetically. It's a big mistake historically. It's a big mistake in terms of doctrinally right. from the vantage point of the church, and it's a big mistake even philosophically, but that takes more time to justify. Right. And let me let me ask you a question. I just wanted to give a plug for, uh, we have a new series on, titled The Heresies coming up starting in oh. March, and one of them will be Arianism and starting off with Gnosticism with the idea mm -hmm. that uh, all of these things are still uh, floating around, nothing new oh, under yeah. the sun. Oh, yeah. uh, but a lot of people think, oh, and this is a new and novel, and then you realize, no, the church uh, dealt with this in the year 175, you know, but uh, yeah. so we want to mention that. The other thing I always think is interesting when people are, are, are dealing with that, you wonder how much of it is, is it really a theological question or is it a morality question of saying, well, if Jesus really isn't the Son of God, then maybe some of the things he had to say, either they aren't accurate or he never said them, or the fact is that since he's not the Son of God, it doesn't carry the same weight, and it allows us to be a little fast and loose with the teachings. Oh, I think that's true. I also think there's a hope problem uh, that's um, intrinsic to us. To it. In other words, God really wouldn't do the job. God really hmm. wouldn't want to become incarnate. The Son of God really didn't. You know, he's, he's not, God's not going to deign to come down and love us unconditionally by becoming incarnate and then subject himself to an ignominious death, passion and death. I mean, are you kidding me? God wouldn't really do that. God's not that loving. God's not that unconditionally loving. And there's, therein lies a real crisis of hope, mm. but it's also a heresy against the unconditional love of God the unrestricted love of God, which is the basis of our hope. Our hope is not based in us. It's based in God's unconditional love that he deigned to come to be with us, wanted to come to be with us mm -hmm. face to face and peer to peer because he loved us not restrictedly, but unrestrictedly. So there's also that heresy that's involved, a moral heresy, a hope heresy, mm -hmm. and just frankly, exegetical ignorance and stupidity. Yeah. It's, it's really, you know, honestly, this is a, uh, you know, I mean, I can see how people get sucked into it, yep. uh, a kind of a minimalist position, but right. it's just so wrong. And what it does to the image of God is so utterly wrong. And how, you know, how are you going to interpret Jesus as saying anyway that the Father, that he knows the Father as the Father knows him? I mean, you know, in terms of Semitic notion, how can you be in intimate communion with God through uh, Jesus, as, as uh, Jesus in intimate communion with God through the Father. I mean, how's that going to happen right. unless he's equivalent right. with the Father? Give me a break. All right, good point. And your book, Christ versus mm -hmm. Satan in Our Daily Lives, at the end of the last chapter, mm -hmm. uh, you say, Satan has no hope of winning and no hope of overwhelming a person of faith. But you say, this does not mean that we should not take the malicious intentions and actions of Satan seriously. Some people would say, why does he bother then? 
Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, you know, he, he you know, Satan likes to attack people of faith. Let's just, you know, Padre Pio, you know, he had to deal with it. Uh, you know, of course, the Curie of ours had to deal with it. And lots of other people had to deal with it, right? I mean, the, the devil, he sees good things going on. So here's this Curie of ours. He's spending 14 hours in the confessional. He's healing all these people. He's giving them reconciliation. He's bringing them back into the church. The devil doesn't like him. Well, is he going to be able to get at uh, the Curie of our soul? No. Is he going to be able to possess him? No. Is he going to be able to oppress him? No. But he can sure attack him and bug him and you know bang his bed all over the place mm -hmm. and keep him up to all hours of the morning and he can do all these things and of course God uh, can allow the evil spirit to do that but what did you know the curie of ours do he just offered it up just mm -hmm. offered the whole thing up uh, for the church and for all his penitents. He, you know, he basically said, hey, uh, go ahead. You can become the instrument through which I can redeem uh, these people through the love of Christ and the grace of Christ even more. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to offer up all these sufferings. And that's what Padre right. Pio did, right? right? So, you know, people who are very saintly, they get attacked right. by the, I mean, St. Anthony in the desert. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the point is pretty clear. Um, you know, the devil does like to attack things. And you'll notice, too, if you're about to do something that's good or mm. will have a really good effect, um, you know, in the church or something right. or will delimit the power of Satan in some way, have you ever noticed you get these bizarre little attacks right. that Absolutely. just start coming right across the board and you go, what the where heck? Did this come you know, from? I mean, where does this come from? I right, know where right, it comes right, from. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember that when we, we used to do marriage encounter weekends uh, years and years mm -hmm. ago. And uh, the week before a weekend, that week, yeah. it was amazing. All of these things would come out of the blue that you'd be like, well, where did oh, yeah. this come from? And, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, and it was just, uh, just yeah. that idea. So as we move into chapter four, how the devil okay. works, I'm jumping ahead here. You say, as we All begin right. this discussion, it must be remembered that though the Lord respects our freedom, we're not alone in this struggle. You're meaning in a sense that the Lord is, is with us if we're struggling with this, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Because, right, first of all, God will respect our freedom. So if we want to be rebellious, uh, he's going to let us be rebellious. Uh, he, you know, he can't take away our use of freedom. I mean, if we want to be, uh, you know, entering into a sinful life, he's going to allow us uh, to enter into a, uh, a sinful life because otherwise we can't be free. And if we're not free, then, of course, what difference does it make? You know, our life in this world, what difference does it make? We have to make a fundamental choice. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, though, if we're struggling God comes to help us. Absolutely. First of all, he helps us with graces. Sometimes you'll notice that, you know, you're getting closer and closer to doing something that's evil, and then all of a sudden the path gets blocked or something happens, and you think to yourself, drats, you know, I, I could have done that evil thing, but gosh, something stood in the way. Mm -hmm. Now, this is when you're, that's the perspective of the guy who's in what St. Ignatius would call the first week of the exercises. That'll be explained more in the of chapter four. Mm -hmm. But in the first week of the exercise, the person going from sin to sin, his perspective is, I'd like to get the sin done if I could. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, the idea that is getting blocked at every turn, you think, oh my gosh, you know, something's going wrong here. But in point of fact, everything's going right. Mm -hmm. God is helping us even despite uh, you know, our desire to go headlong right into the influence of Satan, right into his darkness, right into his seductions, mm -hmm. right into his power. So, of course, 
um, you know, God is trying to help us. And if we're struggling, then we're cooperating with him. And then you'll notice even more conspiracies of divine providence to help you. You'll notice even more uh, little thoughts in the back of your mind. The reason I call them little thoughts in the back mm -hmm. of your mind is because God doesn't want to give you big thoughts in the forefront of your mind because if he did that, he'd wreck your freedom. So he's basically trying to nudge you. He's trying to influence you. He's trying to give you the insight, but he's waiting for you to seize upon it. In other words, uh, you know, I'm bugged. I feel this guilt uh, back there. I feel an emptiness coming on me. I feel this little thought, you know, somebody's urging me to go to confession, urging me to go to church. Somebody's urging me to listen to that crazy person over there uh, who's a priest or whatever it may be right and so you 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 think to yourself for a second aha you know there's more thoughts so you struggle God gives you more little thoughts in the back of your mind more conspiracies of divine providence and always 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 if you're struggling God will use consolations and desolations he knows how to do that so when you're starting to go really awry. If you're struggling, don't worry. You'll get more emptiness, more alienation, and all kinds of deep feelings of dread and things of that nature. Those are good things because, of course, the minute you feel that, you go, I don't want to feel that forever and eternity. I don't want to cooperate with, you know, the devil who's going to give me that for all eternity. And so, of course, you run away from that temptation. Right. You run away from that lifestyle. And so he's trying to keep you off the road of per, uh, perdition or turn you around uh, if you got onto the road of per, perdition. Right. Well, I used to always wonder, because you always kid about Catholic guilt, and it used to strike me, there's nothing wrong with feeling guilty about something you did that was wrong. In fact, you should feel yeah. guilty, and if you don't, yeah. Uh, maybe you yeah. should check out whether you're a sociopath or something. I don't know, <laughs> on an extreme level, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, right. When you think uh, there's nothing I could do yeah. that could possibly be wrong. You go yeah. on to say, for those speaking a way to ultimate happiness and a way out of cosmic emptiness, alienation, loneliness, etc., you talk about the the idea that we must first make a decision first about belief in God and His unconditional love of His church. And I remember Mother talking about the day was coming where people really had to decide for Christ. Yeah, no, it's it's so true. I mean, um, you know, unfortunately, we got to take a step even before that. Mm -hmm. uh, today, we've got so much closet materialism out there. You, you basically have to, no, no longer closet materialism, overt mm -hmm. materialism. Right. But the point is, is, is that we really do have to have people make a decision first for God and then for Jesus, the Son of God. But as I always said, you know, you'll, all, you'll know the power of uh, Jesus and his sonship with God uh, by when you use that, uh, you know, in the name of Jesus be gone, Satan, or you mm -hmm. use another equivalent prayer, in the name of Jesus, you know, help me, Lord, uh, you know, to resist this temptation, or Jesus, come to my assistance, or Lord Jesus, I trust in you. There is a power in that name, and you recognize it uh, after a while because you see its effects. And the same thing with the Holy Eucharist, you see its effects. It has a cumulative effect in your life that doesn't destroy your freedom. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, if you cooperate with it, boy, can you make progress. And uh, it takes time. 
It's really small increments because, again, if it's big increments, your freedom is threatened. God's not going to do that. But you can see that over the course of time, little baby steps just keep going, piling up, and eventually you see freedoms you never thought you would have. I also think God kind of works in leaps sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're kind of going for a while, trying, mm -hmm. struggling, 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 and then you get a, a leap into some new freedom. Mm -hmm. And you go, wow, you know, how did that happen? But that, um, you know, it's like learning a foreign language where all this stuff is kind of building up in the subconscious. You know, so, you know, when you're learning a foreign language, you're trying to memorize all this stuff, and it's all on the conscious level. But eventually, it's seeping down into the subconscious, unconscious level, and that's when you turn on the television and you go, wow, yesterday I couldn't understand anything on the Italian news. Today I can understand 15%. And you go, wow, that's great. You know, I've, I've come you know, far uh, in this regard. But, you know, it's the same thing with, I think, struggling against sin. So you're struggling, 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 and it's all on the rational side, right? It's all upstairs, you know, in your conscious level. And then all of a sudden it starts seeping down into your subconscious and then you get a little 15% incremental freedom mm -hmm. to resist a particular temptation that you were almost powerless about mm. a while back. And so all of a sudden you go, wow, the struggle's worth it. I'm going to keep going. And so, you know, let's suppose you've been resisting prayer. I don't want to pray. 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 But you're struggling against you. Go there to the chapel. You go, you know, and designate a time for your prayer and seeps down from all those conscious decisions into your subconscious. And all of a sudden you find, you know, I, I don't mind praying so much. I think mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I could do a little bit more prayer. <laughs> and you go, where'd that come from? Right, I was right. so busy resisting it a few weeks ago, and, and it, suddenly it's there. So all I can say well, is there are these little leaps as well. So keep struggling. It really does add up. And when the leap happens, you'll know I got a new little freedom thanks to the grace of God. Well, we've got about less than two minutes, but let me ask you, you talk about okay. as we open sure. ourselves to the path of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves somewhat overwhelmed by the teachings of the Lord. Then you go on to say, mm -hmm. this sense of being overwhelmed should not lead to discouragement. I was just thinking, I mean, yeah. people just in general today seem overwhelmed, aren't they? Yeah, they are overwhelmed, and they're overwhelmed because there's so much data out there, and there's so much expectation of responsiveness. You know, people, you know, they text you. They don't text me, thank goodness. But anyway, they uh, they text uh, you, and they, they, you know, put two question marks there if you don't respond in three right. minutes, right. and, right. and uh, so forth and so on. Right. And so, you know, it's it's like, well, you know, I, I want my instant data etc. And of course the data, the amount of data is, is very overwhelming. And, and so that's, that part of the overwhelmed is, is there. And then of course you, you look at the catechism and you look at the moral teaching, you know, you go to part three of the catechism and you're looking at all these moral teachings and you go, I give up. Mm. I can't even keep them straight, let alone do them. Uh, you know, I'm dead in the water. I may as well throw in the towel right now Right. And, you know, just you give it over because uh, I'm never going to get there. That is the wrong approach. The right approach is to be a gradualist. The best way to eat the elephant is one bite at a time. Right. So figure out the bites that you can start with. So some of these things you go, oh, okay, 
you know, I've got problems on six or seven different levels. Take one level and start hacking away at that. Then, you know, later take another thing and start hacking away at that. Because if you try and do everything at once, right. you are going to fail. And if Absolutely. you look at everything at once and you say, oh, I gotta do this, you're just gonna get discouraged. Don't get and discouraged you, yeah, one get, bite at a time. And you do get overwhelmed. So with that bite, <laughs> we're going to uh, ask you to give us your blessing on the way out the door. Absolutely. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord who loves you unconditionally and unrestrictedly fill you with a sense of his patience, his goodness, his love, but above all, fill you with a sense of resolve, a sense of willingness to struggle, a sense of always being dependent upon him, a sense of wanting to follow him in everything so that you might go into the glory of God through that struggle. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week, and don't forget, that all of Father Spitzer's books and many of his videos are available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. We'll continue talking about Satan's tactics. Uh, that's next week. And of course, we've got EWTN Bookmark, the Lenten Cookbook by Scott Hahn. It's got some great essays in it, recipes by David Geiser. Uh, so you didn't know that. That's uh, lots of stuff going on there. We promote, we want to tell you, coming up this week on EWTN, this week's guest, Father William Casey of the Fathers of Mercy. He's a powerful, powerful speaker. Standing Strong in Faith During a Time of Apostasy is his book we're proudly publishing. It'll be on, he'll be on with Father Mitch on Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern with encores throughout the week. And of course, you can check it out on demand as well. And we hope we'll see you as well next week when we once more re-enter Father Spitzer's Universe. See you then.